Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ooh, I hear laughter in the rain. Walking hand in hand. Oh boy, of all the rain songs I could pick, went right to the Neil Sedaka classic. How frickin' old am I? Hey everybody, welcome to Snark Monkey number 11. This is a fun one, and we're going to get right to it. Because uh, it's a long one. Ralph Garman sat and chatted with me for probably much longer than he intended to. But I found the conversation to be completely fascinating. And he's such a talented guy. If you do not know Ralph, you have most likely heard him. Uh, He's been a background voice. Well, not background voice, but he's been numerous voices. And we talk about this on The Family Guy. He has been the in disguise MC for the three editions of the Joe Schmo show. If you happen to catch that, he's been in a number of different movies, including the movies that Seth MacFarlane has made and is making, and uh, is also on a very popular podcast on his own, actually with Kevin Smith, filmmaker Kevin Smith, Hollywood Babylon, part of the Smodcast group. But You may know him best if you are a Southern Californian as the longtime, well, he would probably hate this word, but sidekick for Kevin and Bean on the world-famous K-Rock 106.7 FM on your radio dial. So talented. I've known Ralph for a while as a talented voice guy. It just surprised me to find out, though, that that was, and comedy was not, the thing he aspired to do. It is the thing that has basically built his career. But he started out with the idea of being a relatively serious actor, and that surprised me. He was not particularly headed toward the funny early on in life. And just another episode that shows the twists and turns that your creative ambitions may take as you're trying to follow that dream. I love this story. I think Ralph is such a talented guy. I was very excited that he sat down to talk with me. So let's get right to it then. Ralph Garman. Oh, by the way, we start this episode uh, talking about Mike Nichols, who had just passed away. I believe we had just found out that day. So in hindsight a little bit, just want to tell you that. No, the whole reason that I bring up uh, the rain song is because it's raining here in Los Angeles. I have the door open. I don't know if you can hear the sound in the background. It's such a rare occurrence that I thought I would let the environment come into the monkey cage here. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe nobody cares. Maybe you've already fast-forwarded this just to get to Ralph's podcast. And you know what? I wouldn't blame you because this is just all filler just so I can have a chance to hear myself talk. How about a different rain song? What other rain songs are there? There's like a thousand of them. Why can't I think of one right now? When the Beatles, when the rain. I just realized the rain song by the Beatles, Rain. I don't know the words. I just know that when the rain comes. All right, here's Ralph Garman. Snark monkey number 11. Jeez, maybe I should just redo this whole thing. 
check, check. You're a little, <laughs> little bit more me in my head, though. All right. Can't let me hear. How about that? That's How about that? much better. Oh, you like that? Mm-hmm. Ralph Garman, it's so good to see you and talk to you. Thank you, Larry. This... I want to say Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Thank you. Okay. All right. Good. good. All right. I see we have some catching up to do, apparently. Um, you were walking in here on the day when we have found out that Mike Nichols has passed away. Yes. So as a movie fan that everybody knows you are, let's address that right away since it's kind of fresh. Because okay. that hits me kind of hard when I realize how many amazing movies he made, just to begin with. Yes. Just, I mean, if it was only The Graduate, we could just talk about that. Right. That would be a classic forever, right? What, what's, what's your favorite? Oh, boy. Graduate certainly is up there. Yeah, it has to be, right? Silkwood is just an amazing film. Right. Um, he There's a little-known film he made with George C. Scott called The Day of the Dolphin. I I have such a memory of that. And I do, jo- too. George when C. I, Scott. Yes. Played right. a, played, George C. Scott played a trainer of dolphins for the Navy. He was teaching them to be sort of suicide bombers. And when he realizes what he's training them for, he uh, he tries to set them loose. But the, the these dolphins have been... Um, Taught language, they could speak right. English. No, and it sounds like a crazy, like a, like a lame ass Twilight Zone episode or something. I realize now, as we're talking about it, it sounds film. stupid, right? Yeah, but yeah. it really was, right? I mean, very compelling. Yeah. Um, please do the dolphin impression. Ah, ah, pa lava. That's it. Pa lava. Is there anybody out there who's going to get that reference nope. besides you, you and me? Cut that right out right now. Okay. Uh, uh, but I was a huge fan of his sketch work. You know, this, most people know him as uh, as an award-winning Broadway and film director, but they may or may not know that he started out in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, as half of a comedy team who did sketches, comedy sketches. Yeah, and I believe he goes back to that Chicago scene, if I'm not mistaken, yes. to the, like, the early version of Second City and those Very guys. Very much so, yeah. But yeah, he and Elaine May did um, what at the time they would call party records, you know. Mm-hmm. They would be literally when people actually used to listen to records, comedy records at parties. Yeah. The, his stuff with Elaine May is was groundbreaking stuff. Legendary. Nobody was doing that. And still, is if you go to YouTube, luckily a lot of it has been captured on film because they were always on the Ed Sullivan Show or the Jack Parr Show or with all these variety shows. So a lot of their sketches are captured on film, and you can watch them work, and they're remarkable together. A lot of stuff really holds up. It is kind of time moved on. He moved on and became a director and one of the best. Yeah. He basically just dropped out of that. He could have probably lived off that for years to come as Easily. a performer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Postcards from the Edge, too. Remember that with uh, yeah. Meryl Streep? And, uh, uh, I mean, it, when, once you start thinking about it, I mean, he made some stinkers, but sure. it, it, but the Everybody wide does. he's one of those throwback guys who could kind of do a little bit of everything. Because um, The Birdcage, one yeah. of the most highly regarded comedies from that era. Yep. Uh, closer, or yeah, Closer, closer. Mm-hmm. very intense, small drama. Yeah. Working Girl, big, big movie that year. Um, I mean, he did. He really kind of covered the gamut. He did. He could direct anything. So, Ralph Garman, let's talk about you now, finally. Oh, thank God. You um, got that hack Mike Nichols out of the way <laughs> and get to a real talent. Well, see, I'm going to make the connection here. Okay. No, I have no connection. No, there is none. There's zero <laughs> There's connection. No comparison. Um, let's uh, go with your Philly background. Again, as we speak right now, because this is Post Green Bay, oh, you either stars. despise Mark Sanchez. Do you despise Mark Sanchez right no, now? No, look, no. He um, he wasn't great in that game by any stretch of the imagination. But there was a lot going on with that Philadelphia Eagles team that caused that 
to happen. There was all kinds of problems. Uh, well, they also ran say, into a buzzsaw like, by the name of Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, he, he's just on fire these days. But uh, the secondary, our secondary just got toasted by Aaron Rodgers, and the offensive line was not protecting Sanchez very well. They couldn't get the ground game going. I mean, there's a ton of problems. And Sanchez... Um, uh, look, the guy's basically hasn't really started in an NFL game, you know, in two years, and it's going to take him to, a little while to get his feet under him, you know. So we'll see. Yeah, well, as a USC guy, oh, that's uh, right, who yeah. was really rooting for him and then really disappointed that he left. To in my mind, at least one more year at SC, he could have immediately had more impact with the Jets, yeah. and, and and as somebody who at that point tried to be a Jets fan when right. he joined the team, and that's a very difficult thing to maintain. Uh, I feel like he's just that guy. He's he's brilliant in patches and then just does these dumb things. Yeah, so. accuracy and, and, and bad poor decision-making have been his hallmark. You know, that's always been the, the, the albatross around his neck in the league. But as we're seeing, it may be that no one can succeed in the Jets organization, you know? Um, any quarterback they put in there really has not flourished. So it may have been less Sanchez and more the position he was put in. So we'll see how he does with Chip Kelly. I mean, I, I still think Nick Foles is the man. So I'm, w- I'm looking forward to his return. When he comes back, is being in a Philadelphia Eagles fan perhaps one of the most difficult roller coasters emotionally in sports? For oh. would you say is it? it? Certainly has been the past you know, 15 years or so because. It used to be throughout the better part of um, the post Vermeil, Dick Vermeil error, era, error. It was an error and an error. <laughs> the Vermeil um, error. It was just all bad all the time, and so you got sort of used to it. it was like being a Cubs fan or something, you know, where you just had no expectations yeah. and you just kind of went along for the fun of it. But then we got really good, and when Andy Reid came in with McNabb, and we had a couple of NFC Championship games, we got to the Super Bowl. So there's expectations yeah, like, well, taste. next year, next year, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll finally cash in. And then that all went away again. So it's it's up and it's down. But, I mean, that's the way with any sports team, I think, that you love. Nobody stays great forever, and nobody brings you home a trophy every year. I mean, as Lakers fans who are friends of mine here in this city can attest to, <laughs> I mean, whoever thought the Lakers would suck, and now they're one of the worst teams in the league. Are you uh, you're, you're Philadelphia born and raised, yes, right? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And you you are a proud Philadelphian. I am. You, you wear I'm, it on your sleeve. I am enormously uh fond of that city and my my childhood and my time spent there and the people there and the sports teams and I just I'm a big fan of the city so I am very sort of vocal and proud about my background. It seems like Philadelphia is one of those cities where people who are from there will always be from there. You know what I mean? Yes, it's, it, very much so. It's kind of in the shadow of New York uh and DC in a in a mm-hmm. way. I don't even know that I can identify the identity of Philadelphia other than attach it to its sports fans because they seem to be the the mo- I mean obviously it's got amazing history and all yes. that but it got yanked out of there you know it's like capital down you know in, in DC you mm-hmm. got New York in the in the shadow uh it's way too close to New Jersey for my taste <laughs> um, we're closer to South Jersey than North Jersey so that's that's okay that's a little bit better. I like South Jersey so give me a sense of what growing up in Philadelphia is like i mean i think it is sort of um I think people from Philly do uh, hold it in very high regard, and they're very vocal about their support for the city because we were we are in New York's shadow, and um, there there are rivals in sports as well as in sort of life. You know, I think the thing about New uh, Philly that that really makes the people who are from there um, 
have affection and a very vocal sort of support for the city is that it is a city made up of neighborhoods. Um, you know, there's for years the, the, the you know the Italians were always down in South Philadelphia and the African Americans were in North Philadelphia and West Philadelphia and and there were certain neighborhoods that made up this this mosaic of this the city and you learned to love different kinds of people in different kinds of ways and it was it was um that's pretty classic east coast feel where yes. the, the cultural diversity everybody kind of has their section of town and yet but they really appreciate and enjoy the other things right. that they can find in that city right and i think that's why people have such uh um fond memories of those of us who who grew up there and people who still live there have such a, a strong affinity for the, the cities because it offers an enormous amount in a very sort of small area, you know. Uh, one of the things I mo- found when I moved to Los Angeles was this city is just a, a smorgasbord. I mean, you have to kind of make your own city out of it. It doesn't have any real personality to itself. You have to kind of choose from column A and column B and column right. C and kind right. of put your own city together because you can do anything in any time, anywhere with anybody out here. Yeah, it's there. You just have to put in more work than yeah. you do in other places. But Philadelphia is a very strong working class sort of uh, work ethic uh, to its personality and the people that um, live there are sort of a blue-collar, um, hard-working, sports-loving, you know, just a it's just a very blue collar sort of upbringing. It's almost got a Midwestern feel on the East Coast to me. It's it's I mean it's cosmopolitan, obviously. Yeah, it's, there's it's a, a, big a lot town. of art there, yeah. a lot of great cuisine, a lot of great restaurants, a lot of you know a lot it has a lot going for it in terms of being sophistication. But the, most of the people who work there aren't really sophisticated. It's got its high end areas and stuff. Yeah, but it's mostly a blue collar town, and I think it's another part of its charm is the fact that they're all a bunch of like hardworking people who take their sports teams very seriously mm-hmm. and take their families very seriously. And until I moved, there had been no one in my family that had ever left the city. What did your parents do? My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my father worked in the film industry his almost entire life. In Philadelphia? In Philadelphia, which was, was weird. Was there a lot mm-hmm. going on there? No, was, no, not at all. He worked in the uh, distribution aspect of, oh, okay. of, of film. He's, for one of the studios? Mm-hmm. Worked for Paramount Pictures oh, wow. for almost all of his career. Started out with Buena Vista, which at the time was the distribution arm of Disney back in the uh, right. back in the day is when he started. And then he ended up working for National Screen for a short period of time. And those were the people who distributed all the promotional materials for films, all the one-sheet posters and press kits and things like that. And then ended up working for Paramount Pictures for the majority of his career. He was there for almost 40 years. So at least in some respect, you were exposed to more of a business side of the... I mean, were you early on big movie lover, big TV? I mean, you were... Very much so. You and I are similar ages. I was... uh, I was television was my babysitter. I was more of a latchkey kid for a while, but I gravitated to watching TV mm-hmm. for hours. And oh, hours me too. And hours. Uh, television was everything to me growing up, but then also film because my father would bring home from the office soundtrack albums and one sheet posters and uh, press kits. You know, and these were things that were not available. Like they are now, you can't go on eBay and get something. I mean, my friends would come into my room and see the Raiders of the Lost Ark poster hanging on my wall that had been in the movie theaters, you know, at the same time. And they're like, where did you get that poster? You couldn't get this stuff anywhere. Yeah. And I was able to go to 
screenings before movies were released. So I was going to press screenings, you know, when I was nine. And, and I was taking my friends from junior high school to go see Greece before it opened. You know, <laughs> we did a class trip and my dad got a theater and we ran it for everybody before it came out. And it was a very show busy kind of upbringing in a town that didn't have any of that, you know. So I, the allure of show business and sort of the fun and glamour of it was something that I was uh, attracted to early on. Do you remember that first kind of hint that being an actor or being a comedian or being funny or whatever was the thing you wanted to do? Was there that little, I, I say this a lot, unfortunately, the the switch that flipped and yes. you went, oh. Yeah. Um, what was it? Uh, my, I remember my first grown-up movie, my first R-rated movie oh. was the The Sting with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. That was rated R? I believe it was. Yeah, interesting. If it wasn't, it was my first grown-up movie. It was the first movie I went to to see that wasn't animated or Disney or Bedknobs and Broomsticks or something. It was like my first grown-up adult film. Yeah, okay. I get that because there, there is, obviously, I mean, it's, it looks cartoony now, but there's violence. But there's um, there's a, like a, a, a strip joint or it's one point or something. I'm trying to remember. I, I remember the soundtrack almost more than I remember the movie because that's one of those soundtracks I had. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, but it's a, it's a con man movie. It's yeah. A, it's about uh, Redford and Newman teaming up to take down uh, Robert uh, Robert Shaw. Yes, yes, yes. yes. They're they're uh, they're coming up with this con to take him down because they he killed one of their friends, and that's the the basic premise. And so I think it's seventy three that movie came out. I want to say because I was around nine years old, and I went with my mom and dad and watched it. I was just enthralled. I mean, uh, first of all, those two guys on the screen. It's the first time I'd ever seen them. I'm oh, like, yeah. who are these? gods from olympus that came down to uh, earth you know and yeah. fascinating and charming and and beautiful to look at and the whole film is just brilliantly well done anyway the, the whole con is going on and on and on and spoiler alerts if you haven't seen a movie that's 30 years old <laughs> do we still have to keep doing that even for stuff that's been <laughs> 40 around years for freaking that long um at You're... the end of the film there's a big twist where it turns out the audience has been conned just as much as the characters in the film has been have been conned right and i remember my, the top of my head blowing off <laughs> And I'm and I said to myself internally that I want to make somebody else feel like I just felt right. Like I want to I want to create an, a situation where I can evoke an emotion from someone else watching the way I was just sort of taken on that ride, you know. And that's when I first fell in love with the idea of of drama about of of putting on a show or putting on a performance that would evoke a strong reaction from somebody whatever that would be because i was literally dumbfounded by what happened to right, me right and i said that's the most remarkable thing that two guys on a movie screen it's something that was made you know three thousand miles away and i'm sitting here in the dark watching this and they can have that kind of effect on me and you recognize that it wasn't just the characters at that point it wasn't these no. mystical characters you recognize there were people behind doing that i knew that people. was a job yeah and yeah. maybe i'd learned that from my father you know i i recognized that the movie industry was a business and people made these things and they put them together and then they were sold and then tickets were bought i mean i understood the commerce of it right and i said well if that's a job i want to do that job <laughs> that is that is remarkable that you could you could affect someone by remote control almost you know right, right. and that's when i fell in love with the concept of acting and then from that point on 
once I had that point of view, I looked at everything through that prism, you know. So I, you were nine. So were you, did you start doing, I mean, were you kind of a cut up in class? Mm-hmm. Were you the class clown? Were you making jokes? I mean, yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's all these stories. You were already that guy. But in, in kindergarten, I would take a table and turn it on its side and grab some of the hand puppets and put on hand puppet shows for the other kids in the class. <laughs> and the kindergarten teacher was like telling my mother, it's like, it's kind of, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a little strange that he does this almost every day and the kids shut up and sit down and they sit there and watch and he does different voices and he does these little plays for the kids and and my mother said I know it's, it's just something that he just likes to do so that was the beginning of it and I was always putting on you know as the holidays come up now I always think of family get togethers at Thanksgiving and Christmas and my poor long-suffering family that would have to endure some magic show that I put on because I'd gotten a magic kit for Christmas or some play. I was going, you know, some some uh, put on a record and I would mime something, you know. Or were, were would, you were you also recruiting? Did you have siblings? Yeah, I have an older sister yeah. and she was never willing to play, but all my cousins were. And so I would, you got uh, all the people involved. You gave them together. parts. You gave them lines. Yeah, yeah. You so, were that guy. So that was going on even in elementary school prior to this. I'd never put two and two together though until that moment that this could be a profession, you know. It was something I did for laughs because I enjoyed it, but once I saw the sting, I said, oh, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a career that can be, yeah. that this can be part of. So did you I realize start... how difficult it would be to try to do that. But <laughs> Well, did you start actively pursuing it in school at that point? Did you do yeah. all the plays and all the musicals? Some, something more formal. I started doing plays, and uh, in junior high school, I started doing all the, the drama stuff with the uh, drama group, and then in high school and college, I studied, and uh, so it really, from nine on, I pretty much knew what my my track, my course was going to be. Now, was it comedy? Was it, did you focus, did you have your serious drama phase? You went to LaSalle. LaSalle University in Philadelphia, which had no formal drama program, so I took communication arts. I took film, radio, and television, and they had a a really sort of uh, well-appointed drama club there, but no... No, no major in drama. So I was doing all the plays there. And I did it all. I did a lot of musicals because that's just what there is to do yeah. when you're doing high school. Tell and, me. Give me and, the titles. Let's um, hear it. Uh, I was Fagin and Oliver. Of and I did uh, Harold Hill and Music Man. <laughs> and I was Captain Von Trapp and Sound of Music. And I was Danny in <laughs> Greece. And I was leading player in Pippin. I mean, I hit all the biggies. Oh, man. And then we would do one musical in college, especially we did one musical, and then we did one straight play, you know, one drama or comedy. And I, I did those as well. I did Barefoot in the Park, and I did Played Against Sam, and I did a bunch of other uh, plays that were that were really fun. But I never really, um, comedy was not something that I had my sights set on. Really? I really? I always thought drama would be more of my thing. That's what I would do primarily was drama. Interesting. So, but because you recognized early on, you could make people laugh, and you had the kids, you know, wrapped up in the puppet shows. But you wanted to be, but you wanted to have more depth. You felt like there was something more. No, I, mean, I mean, even the sting is is incredibly light. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of humor in it, yeah. but it's also sort of a. Uh, um, yeah, there's some dark. Yeah, there's you're a lot right. of drama in it. You yeah, know. Yeah. Um, I just, I, you know. When I was doing it in elementary school and stuff, when I was putting on those shows and everything, it wasn't necessarily um, comedy per se. It was just performance. You know, for me, it was um, just getting up in front of people and doing something. I was never sort of the class clown who would stick ra- erasers up his nose and everything. You know, it was always some sort of presentation. It was very presentational. Right, I always right. had that that in mind. And so when I started doing... You were, write, you were writing as opposed to improv. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. You constructed stuff. And when I was doing more stuff that was more formalized in school, it was, um, you know, musicals and, and that kind of thing. But 
I, when I started training, I was trained at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia and some others. I was taking serious scene study classes, and and and, and I just assumed that would be the the route for me because I started to, at that point in my uh, life, appreciate the the that generation of actors that sort of blew up when I was very impressionable, the De Niro's and the Pacinos and all these guys that were sort of known as. What what Brando must have represented in the fifties and sixties to actors? That's what these guys wore to right. people who wanted to be actors. You wanted to be like those guys, intense and deep and and affecting and affected sometimes. And so that's <laughs> that was sort of what I was growing up around. So that sort of was my goal. I had no I had no plans to do comedy really in any way. Were you it, were you do? I mean, you're such you're a master of impressions. Well, you're very kind. Um, were you doing voices? Were you mimicking people? Did that come up at all? Never professionally. Never in any sort of. Uh, you know, I'd never got up in front of an open mic night and did impressions or anything. It was only for my friends. It was only something I did to, to fool around at, you know, the lunch table in school or, you know, uh, over beers with my friends at a party or something. Never in a million years did I think I could use that in any useful way, which is kind of crazy to, to put, to, to take something that could be another arrow in your quiver and just set it aside. But it, for me, it always felt like a party trick. It was like some goofy thing I could do. But it wasn't really serious. Right. It didn't really matter in any way. You know? Well, I think this is uh, – sometimes this is the theme that I kind of find from so many people who have reached a certain level of success, which is why I like having these conversations. Because what ends up happening where you are now is almost never what you thought it was going to be. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I'm always telling people, you know, it's great to have dreams. But if you don't – if you're not willing to adapt to the dream as you go along, you're going to get very frustrated. Right. Because – as a kid in Philadelphia doing puppet shows, you would have never thought, I'm going to be a cartoon voice. No. I'm going to be a guy on a radio for however many years. How long has it, Kevin uh, and Bean been? 15-ish oh, years. Oh, God. You've got to get out of there. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm the bird in the gilded cage. Well, we, we've totally <laughs> – we'll get to that. Well, <laughs> we totally glossed over the Batman impact. And here you've mm-hmm. – not only are you talking about Batman on a regular basis, um, you've written – a comic, a comic book. book yeah. Adam West is one of my none buddies. Of, none of the uh, yes, <laughs> the Batman that we grew up my with Batman, is yeah. one of your friends. You you could have never predicted any of those elements to have happened. No, yeah. I always thought I'd be a character actor in movies. That was a very Philadelphia way of saying movies, by the way. Movies. <laughs> um, thinking about my childhood brings back my Philadelphia. The accent, accent comes back. Or I would do, uh, you know. Um, Maybe a sitcom on television, or or maybe you know, I always thought I'd end up maybe playing one of those uh, private eyes, like a Jim Rockford type, or you know one of those um, Magnum yeah, PI yeah. or something like that. I always sort of thought maybe that's where I'll end up, but never never anything is the, of the things that have actually happened to me. No. So coming out of Philly, let's go back again. So you graduate LaSalle, yes, and you've got this influence of the De Niro's and the Hoffmans and the right. and those that era, which right. I totally get. Did you end up in New York for any length of time? Was that an attraction? Because that seems, being in Philadelphia and those guys being the influence and theater and drama, it seems like New York would be the next choice. Early on in my life, I knew that I wanted to do film and television over theater. Theater was what I could do, what I did because it was what was available it was to me. Accessible, you yeah. know. I could do a play at school, but I couldn't be in a movie at school. You right. know, so I just got up on the stage and I did whatever I could. But I always knew my ultimate dream. Um, was to get to Los Angeles. I took a trip, a summer trip with my family when I was a kid early on. Uh, and my father, having worked for Paramount, was able to pull some strings and get us a VIP tour of the lot at Paramount. Oh. And I, for the first time, I saw behind the curtain, you know. You saw the this, this, this city scenes and the 
and the sets and it all was that beyond stuff. that. I was sitting in Arnold's in a booth in Arnold's on the Happy Days. The set. Happy Days set. Oh. They, they shot at Paramount, so I was there. the in, The interior um, sets for Little House on the Prairie were on the Paramount lot, so I went into the um, the general store where uh, the Engels got their <laughs> candy and their, their clothes and everything. I Godsey, or, no, what? I Godsey. He was at the Waltons. Um, I forget who ran the store, the Little yeah, House on the store. But anyway, I was there. I mean, I was. You know, walking the streets and and sitting in places that I had seen. It was like stepping into your television when I was there. So, by the way, we're both grown ups and we've both been around show business. But I I was on Warner Brothers not too long ago. Don't you still get that feeling? Absolutely, I always love that little magical feeling. Anytime I walk in a lot, it's like the happiest I I am. It's 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 something that hasn't gone away. I remember the first time I ever got to walk on one, and it's I still get that way. I still have that little nerdy moment of look. It looks just like a street. Absolutely, the same way. Ridiculous. I've done that way when I work, and I'm you know I've been lucky to be a professional actor, but uh, you know when I was doing NYPD Blue and we were shooting on the New York Street there on the lot at Fox. Fox, right. Um, every time I showed up to work, and I did a dozen episodes of that show. Um, every time I showed up to work, I'd be like, "This is the Hello Dolly Street. This is where Barbara Streisand, you know, walked the streets yeah. of New York. That's what this is." Yeah, there's still some magic, and there, there is still some magic. And yeah. I think if you ever lose that, maybe you should get out of it because right. that's part of the fun. I think. But the reason people want to do this is, yes, it can be you know soul crushing and yeah it's a lot of rejection and blah 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 but it's also an enormous amount of fun yeah it's you still get make to play. believe yes it's like being a professional ball player or something you know you get to do something that children do and get paid for it which is ridiculous and i still try to keep as much fun and joy in the work as possible so that trip as a kid to la right, and hollywood yeah. got so that, that cemented it for me yeah you okay. know, i saw that and i said yeah this is where i want to be i want to be here in this town on, on, on a lot like this working with people like this and um so when i went back to philadelphia from that point on i knew that's the city i was headed to so i got out of college and i was studying serious drama at the walnut street theater in philadelphia and i was taking some classes and you know, waiting tables and doing the whole nine yards. And I was kind of stuck. I didn't know how to make the leap because I always decided I didn't want to struggle in Los Angeles without a SAG card. You know, I didn't want to be doing non-union stuff and be, be, I didn't want to have the handicap of not being able to compete with the big boys once I got to the city. Wow. Now this is, is way much more forethought already than almost any aspiring actor who basically gets out of college, packs up the car, says, Goodbye to teary mom and dad. Yeah. And heads on out. Well, I did all that, too. Oh, you did? Yeah. I mean, you, that was exactly how I left my house. You but know? the thought process of saying, here's how I get a step but ahead. I had a real plan. Yeah. No, I had a definite plan. I think, again, it came from the fact, having watched my father sell film for his entire life, I recognized the business of it as much as I did sort of the stardust of it all. You saw the practical side as opposed to 90 percent of the people who end up here going i'm gonna go be fam-. i mean it right. still happens they just see the magic and yeah. they don't see the fact that it's it's a product you know it's a commerce and and, and a ton of work that goes and into a ton it. of work that goes into it and i knew i said if i you know if i wanted to succeed if i want to give myself the best chance at succeeding i had to come up with a really strong game plan you know i needed i needed that i needed to save some money so i could have a couple months worth if I didn't get a job right away in Los Angeles, they wouldn't have to turn tail and come home because I got, you know, I ran out of money. I mean, I, there, these were steps that I knew I had to achieve. And one of them was I wanted to try to get a union card before I left so I could go out on auditions right away in Los Angeles and compete with anybody else. And so that was the goal was trying to find a union 
gig that was shooting in either Philly or New York or Jersey or someplace I could get to where I could get Taff Hartley into the union. I don't even know how it works anymore. It's been so long since I got my union it's card. It's basically the same, although with the Internet uh, situation now, there there is a little backdoor loophole that you can get your SAG card right away just by doing like a web pilot. Oh, really? I shouldn't be revealing this. They're probably trying to close up that loophole as we speak. We're all one, we're all one union now, right? So it doesn't matter. But it, it used to be that uh, you couldn't get your union card until you worked a union job, and right. you couldn't work a union job unless you had your union card. Yeah. It was that catch-22. ultimate catch-22. Yeah. And so um, my goal was to try to find a, a gig, and it was, it was hard. It was difficult. But it was so funny how things work out. I was in this class with another actor, an older actor, whose wife, it turns out, was a local casting director. This is unbeknownst to me. I found out in a very weird way. So we're working together, and he was a pretty good actor, and he was doing, I think, just for the, the fun of it, and I was very serious, and we were doing scenes together and stuff. And so he's home with his wife one night, and she is casting um, what was known back in the day, kiddies, as an ABC after-school special. <laughs> and this was an ongoing series, as, as you can imagine, on ABC. It was an after-school series where they would, once a month or whatever, put on a TV movie made just for kids about the problems that kids face, like drugs and alcohol or incest or whatever right. dra- drama you know whatever trauma they were going through so anyway they're they were, pretty amazing to watch now by the way oh too. man there's yeah. some acting going on in those things <laughs> Is that affleck what? did one ben affleck did one oh, about he did. Uh, he did one about steroid abuse in uh, high school athletes and boy he goes into a road rage scene that is, uh, a roid rage scene rather that is, is that legendary the one, is that the one where he jumps out the window am i thinking of the right one no, no? This one he tears he tears this room apart okay and uh, there's one that's a, a that's drug related i guess and and the end result is they it someone thinks they can fly yeah it's it's like it's almost reefer madness like in its in its insanity mm-hmm. of and they jump i i swear to god that's one of them yeah so anyway, she's casting this thing. She's casting an ABC after school special that's shooting in Philadelphia. And they're having a hard time finding this role. They need somebody who can play 18 to play the captain of the high school football team, who's actually a bully and, a, and has a gambling problem. And so wow. she's looking through headshots, and her, her uh, husband says to her, literally, there's a kid in my acting class at Walnut Street who looks young enough to play 18, and he's a good actor, and I think you should read him. So I get a call literally out of the blue saying, hello, this is Alina DeSantos. That was her name. Would you like to be in an ABC after school special? And I was like, what are you? Who is this? What's going on? <laughs> it's like we're, we're, we're looking to cast the role and uh, they're actually in production. And I can have you meet with the director during his lunch tomorrow and you read for him and, and see how it goes. So I said, okay. So they were actually shooting in Delaware at the time. I drove down to Delaware, and I met uh, Kevin Hooks is the name of the director, who has since done a ton of oh, work. Oh, yeah. He was an actor, too. He started on a, a, a TV series called The White Shadow. Right. He played a basketball player. It was an all-black all basketball team, and Ken Howard was their white coach. Was the, was yeah, the... he played Thorpe on that show, and he's a very talented actor and director. But this was his first thing he had ever directed. Directed a ton of TV after that. A ton that. of TV, yeah. yes. And he's from Philly, too. So that's, I think, one of the reasons he wanted to work in that area. So I go down, and I meet him at... at at lunch and i read for him and he goes yeah okay great you're you're in and you start your stuff shoots in two days so we'll see you back here in two days and like that suddenly i walked back to my car and i was uh, an actor and i had i would get my sag card from this role and i would shoot you know for three weeks it was a it was a nice big part and i got to play the bad guy in it and stuff and everything and it was just it was just terrific so once i had that card then i knew the next step for me was 
to to pack up and have the teary parents and say yeah. farewell yeah. and then then go away. So here's another one of those elements. Again, people's stories parallel. There is always that moment, and it usually involves a person or a champion or something that has nothing to do. I mean, you've put in the work, you've got the dream, but this circumstance. And yes. how many jobs have you gotten? How many really good jobs have you gotten based upon relationships versus how hard you had to work or go, or blind auditions? I mean, if you were to balance it out over time. I'd be hard-pressed to find one that didn't come out of a relationship exactly. that I started. That's my point. But it's, but, and people always say it's who you know. But I No, found- it's not about that. I mean, it's it's... It's circumstances. I mean, this guy didn't owe you anything. No. You guys weren't best friends. No. But it was through him recognizing your talent. But it was also because I was in class. Right. You know what I mean? A, a lot of actors no, that I had gotten out of college with um, were waiting tables and sitting. Right. You know? And I've always been the guy who said, no matter what, I need to be doing it. Whether I have to pay to do it or someone's paying me to do it. Whatever it takes, I have to keep working. I have to keep putting it out there because that's the only way you can make relationships. People have to be able to discover you, and the only way they can do that is if you are in their line of sight doing something. Yeah, you know? that old Schwab's drugstore story happens a fraction of a percent of the time. It's- and the and the audition stuff happens a fraction of the percent of the time. And mm. if you're leaning only on auditions to get out there to get your work, you're 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 killing yourself because there's a vast piece of the pie that's missing there which is people saying i saw this guy in a thing that he was doing Mm -hmm. that you know it was it was a piece of crap but he stood out and he was good let's talk to him about fill in the blank you know and uh, yeah it's important to audition and to be good at auditioning and go out and do that stuff but almost everything good that came has come in my career has been one unexpected and a complete zig to my what i thought was going to be a zag right right and secondly came from somebody that had seen me do something or uh, or, or gave me a chance because of something I had done in, but, in front of them. But know. this is why I find this fascinating because the, there is no formula. Obviously, no, you no. don't. There is no blueprint. Don't mm-hmm. even try. But the the consistent points that happen for people who reach a certain level are generally the same, which is a work ethic, a, a, a good plan like you had, whether you follow end up following it or not. Right. Um, a set of circumstances that you don't predict and yet you're prepared for. And then that and luck. I mean, absolutely, just luck. Absolutely, and and you just have to have faith that that little all those things align at the same time. So let's get you packed up and head to California. Yes. How, this uh, is going to be a long show if we just linger here. I'll no, tell no, you. no. We got to move on because uh, everybody knows everything you're doing now. I won't. hardly. <laughs> <laughs> if that was the case, I wouldn't be here. I'm here to promote. Damn it! Promote, promote, promote. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we're here for four hours, right? Oh yeah. Um. So you're headed to California. Yes. Uh, how was that trip, by the way? I was uh, I was devastated when I left my parents. It was so funny. I, I was so excited up until that point. And then when you actually say goodbye and you're leaving, as I mentioned, no one in my family had ever left Philadelphia before. So I was the first one to... And you guys are close? Very tight you got, family. Got along? Very yeah. tight family. It was very difficult for me to leave. A lot of tears. And um, in fact, I, I called my f- a friend of mine who actually was a teacher of mine at LaSalle University, was a professor of mine. And he was the only guy I had known... Uh, again, because Philadelphia people tend to stay. If you're born and raised in Philadelphia, you tend to stay and die in Philadelphia. But I had known a few people, and he was one of them. He was my writing professor who had actually, when he was younger, had moved to Los Angeles and had done some writing for some sitcoms, written on Sanford and Son and a couple of other things. So um, he had, the only guy I knew had experience with this process of leaving Philadelphia and going to the big city and trying to make it. So I called him up in a state of just 
paralyzing fear. And I said, <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. I know I've, I'm, I'm, I w- I have packed the car and I've got everything ready and I'm good to go, but I just don't know if I can actually do it. And he said, you have to remember this. It may not be your destiny to stay in Los Angeles, but it's absolutely your destiny to go to Los Angeles. And that's, that was an enormous relief to me because he made me realize that worst case scenario, things don't pan out. You can, you'll always come back home. We'll always be here and Philly will always be here and we'll always be here, but you have to at least give it a shot. You have to get out there because if you don't, the what ifs will eat you up. Well, it's interesting when you're, when you're that age, how old were you? 21, 22? 21. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're that age, you feel like every move you make is the most monumental decision you've ever made. Right. and, and, And irreversible. And I'm going through this with my son who's 23 now, graduated BU, wants to be an actor, is also a musician. So he's got the odds against him, moved to New York. He's doing the New York thing, waiting on tables. Um, and for him, every decision has been the most monumental of his life. Mm-hmm. And what we have to keep reminding him is this is the perfect time to give New York a shot. Absolutely. Because if it, you just find it doesn't work, then you come back here. You've got a support system. You've got people who love you. You've got people who are your champions. You can do anything. You have no ties. You have no girlfriend at this point. It, you're, no you're mortgage, the, no kids. You're in the perfect position to be... To change your mind every six months oh, if you God, need to. I miss those years. Don't you know? <laughs> it was the best. No you could do anything. Oh, I know you it. had responsibilities, but you're only responsible to yourself. That's all you had to do yeah. was do, make yourself happy and do the right thing yeah. for you. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh. If you wanted to blow off work that day and just sit and eat chips in front of the TV all day, there, the repercussions were not that big. Right. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Good times. <sighs> All right, so you get here. I do. You get over your fear? I got, my, uh, I got over my fear, and I said, yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to take my shot. And I drove across country in my uh, Nissan Pulsar. <laughs> and, uh, sweet ride. Oh, it was a sweet ride. How long did you have that? Um, for, for a long time. Yeah. I, I got it uh, in high school, and I, I drove it all through college, and I drove it for the first few years I was in L.A. until I uh, wrecked it. But, um, yeah, so I showed up, and I had no idea what I was doing, and I landed in L.A. on valentine's day i'll never forget and it was pouring down rain and i was on sunset and i just gotten off the 10 and i was on sunset boulevard like in the like the shitty side of sunset down by like uh, ktla5 and everything down right. there, like the low rent side <laughs> right of sunset. right near the 101 and yes it's right near the gross. 101 yeah. and um, still the low rent part of <laughs> it's, it's, it's not this not the the uh it's not what you think when you see sunset boulevard and you're a kid from philadelphia you say really is this sunset this boulevard? is hollywood And so uh, it was just pissing down rain, and I said, oh, this is depressing. And so I just immediately checked myself into the closest motel I could find. And and the next day, um, the sun was shining, and I could see the Hollywood sign from the window of the motel room, and uh, that was the beginning of the adventure. And I actually went down to the, the desk clerk, and I said, I'm going to be an actor. But I have no idea where to live. Where do you think I should live? You went to the desk clerk yes. of the of the was it of a the Dunes Motel, which is still the there, motel. by the way. The Dunes Motel, which is still there. Well, I'm be... sure that's actually a way station for a number of I don't know where to go right now. Actors. <laughs> as well as crack addicts and, hookers. <laughs> and prostitutes. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I went down to the very uh, nice desk clerk and I said to him, "I'm going to be an actor, but I don't know where to live. What would you recommend?" And so he was very sweet. And uh, and I think I had a little crush on me. He was a, an elderly uh, gay gentleman, and he pulled out a map that you could buy there at the because uh, you know it's a, it's a tourist trap at this motel. You know, sure, you could get the map, and he opened it up, and he said, "Well, this is where 
this is where Warner Brothers is, and this is where NBC is. There's a, a big, Universal's here. It's a big group of studios and stuff in this area. So I think it would be best for you to be sort of in the Glendale Burbank area. And so uh, I said, okay, great. So I got in my car, and the first stop was Glendale, and I got a local paper, and I found an apartment. And it was, I mean, I just started the process. You just, you, you, it, it's kind of nice when you get to a new town because you have the ability to start from from, from scratch. And then you get to start all over, but you have to put the work in. You have to, step by step, you have to start to rebuild a life. You need a place to live. That's the first priority. You but, need to get a job. You need to do these things. And, and I did them. Did L.A. seem I, – I was coming from a much smaller place. I came from Odessa, Texas. I went to USC and went to film school. But I remember flying in on the plane and seeing the view of Los Angeles. And I – you know, in Odessa, Texas, at my high school, I – I had a reputation for being, you know, funny or whatever. I was on the radio as a 15 and 16-year-old. I had this kind of – I remember flying in going, oh, I don't mean anything here. Nobody – I. this is so huge to me. I yeah. was overwhelmed. Did you Did you have that At least feeling? you had USC to, to get your feet wet in, you yeah, know? But I, I remember feeling really intimidated. But by, you had some structure there. You had a school and you had classes to go to and stuff. You know, when you get there and you're, you're out of school and you just get there by yourself, there's nothing – it's just you. Yeah. You have nowhere to show up. You've got no no administration's office. You got nothing. You're just you got to find everything on your own. Well, but deal. but that's what I'm asking. Did you feel overwhelmed? Or well, did I you know just... because I was a city kid. I'd grown up in Philadelphia, right. and I, from the, the minute I could get on the L train or the bus down to Center City, Philadelphia, I was down there to see movies and to hang out. And I, I was I was taking the bus to you know see Flyers games and, and Eagles games when I was a little kid. So I was used to the big city feel. So and... you could navigate. You didn't have any problem. You were just but you were trying to. Come Kind of meticulously go step by step. Yeah, I just said, all right, this is a big, this is a big area. I needed to narrow down at least where I was going to live initially. I needed to pick a smaller uh, surface area to, to you know, to, to, I need to find the strike zone. And so I said, I'm, I'll start here then. If I start in the Glendale Burbank area and stuff, then at least that gives me a starting point. And I found something right away that first day. So I was in Glendale for the first couple of years. I was in Los Angeles, which was kind of cool because Glendale is sort of a small city in the middle right. of a bigger city. It was like a subset, you know, so you could sort of get your feet wet and get to meet some friends and meet some people and stuff. And that made things easier. So uh, what was the first gig? Well, once you got into town, what was the first gig? Again, talk about kismet and just being blessed. My very first, well, first I went through the process of sitting at the, the kitchen table in this studio apartment I was living in and stuffing the envelopes with the pictures and resumes, oh, you know, no. which was, uh, I don't know if that still happens anymore or not, but to, in order to find an agent, you had to get the list of current agents from the Samuel L. French bookstore, <laughs> and you put that down there, and then you had to stuff your cover letters and your pictures and your, your resumes in the manila envelope, your 8x10s, and then you address these uh, things and you send them off, and then you wait for a phone call, right? That's saying, saying, yes, we're interested. You, you, you don't have your type or whatever. Come in and meet with us. So I did that, and I got my first agent. And so I met with them, and uh, very nice people, very small agency, and they said, um, we've got an audition for you. And it was my first Los Angeles audition. So I went out on it, and I got into the room, and I could actually see in the waiting room actors that I recognized from television and stuff. And there's nothing more intimidating for me initially when I used to go out on auditions was seeing people whose work I liked and knew because they were they were for real. I, right. I, I had no business being here because these are real actors, professional actors, and I'm this jerk-off from Philadelphia who just wants to do what they do. You know, I'm the pretender. <laughs> so I sat there in the room, and I auditioned. It was for a, a sitcom based on an old Broadway play called You Can't Take It With You. And they were doing a sitcom version of it with Harry Morgan, who had played Colonel Potter on MASH. Right. And this was his uh, second series after the failed After, after Mash, Mash series. Right. He took this on. It was for NBC. And... Um, I was supposed to play the girl, the boyfriend of one of the 
teenage girls who was playing his granddaughter. And so I went in and I auditioned and son of a good bitch, I got it. I got the gig, the very first thing I auditioned for. And I remember came in, uh, hearing from my, my uh, who, agents, who I think were much more surprised than, than I was that I'd actually landed a job. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this town is a snap. This is so awesome. I just got here and I got my first gig. Oh, I'm going to have my own series in like six months. It's couldn't just, have been a worse thing to happen I to. I know. I really could have used a couple slap downs before I really <laughs> thought that uh, you know I was going to be a huge success in this town. <laughs> so I got my first gig and there I was working with um, Harry Morgan. Colonel Potter. Colonel Potter, who was very sweet to me. I had no idea he was a wife beater at the time. Oh. And, um and a guy named Richard Sanders who played Les Nessman on WKRP in yes. Cincinnati. He was one of the stars. An actress named Lois Nettleton who had done a ton of work. And uh, I, I did a couple episodes of this show, which was, uh, you know, no one knows about it because it was a failed sort of uh, uh, project. Over did it actually NBC. end up on television? It aired. There was a short-lived experiment that NBC was doing called Prime Time at 7.30. And on all their owned and operated uh, NBC stations, they would put a sitcom on at 7.30. As opposed to starting primetime at eight o'clock, they were trying to develop some viewership in between that 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 late evening news slot and the and the start of the major network I stuff. Have a vague memory of that. And there was a bunch of bad sitcoms that, that filled that. That's it was every night, Monday through Friday. There was a different sitcom. Ours was one. Um, another one was She's the Sheriff with Suzanne Somers, yes. where she played a sheriff in a small town. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I no. Think, uh, I think Out of This World may have started there about the girl who was a half alien. Her mother sleeps with an alien or something, and she had magical powers. Does this ring a bell oh, at all? God, you need to you need to get that out of your brain for <laughs> for more important things. So that's insane. I was one of these shows, and that was a failed experiment. No one watched sitcoms at seven thirty, no. and it went away after one season. <laughs> but it was where's my Wheel of Fortune? <laughs> that's right. They went oh. to cheaper game shows. But it was it was a blast, and uh, it was a great introduction to to actual work. And then I didn't work again for a long time. <laughs> you know, off and on, little bits and pieces here and there. But it was it was a long time before anything regular ever happened. Now, at one point, you ended up. Um Correct me if I'm wrong. With the Acme Group, is that that's where it all started to happen? Yeah, because yeah. and and it's it's unfortunate to actually say that now because. It seems like that there was a period of time where this sketch comedy group was the hot thing in town, and there are so many great names that came through there, and, and a lot and of we'll talented people those. were there. Yeah. Uh, and right now, it's it's this theater that just sits there on La Brea that Yakov Smirnov hunkers down in for like a couple of months. There's no, two of them. Nothing now. against Yakov. I mean, no, I mean, he's a genius. What, what a country! What a country indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, Yakov Smirnov is uh, is in residency. At the Acme on La Brea, and then there's another one in the Valley, North Hollywood, right, I think, that they right. still have, too. But I don't know if they have a, a, a sketch a player, a group I, of players I, anymore. I think or, it's totally different. Oh, that's a shame. So how did you connect with that? Because I, I, I love hearing kind of this story about kind of these people that you were working with, and also kind of how it came to be that you were doing these ridiculous bits here at, at this place. Well, here's the thing. At the time, I had done... Um, uh, the ABC After School Special, right? Then I had done this sitcom, but I had done mostly at this point drama. I had done a. Uh, they used to have these um, syndicated, dramatized courtroom shows on in the afternoon, where they would take a real life case and actors would portray the people in the case, and it would be like a, like a sh- like a, a cheap version of a of a of a crime drama or something that took place in a courtroom. Very cheap. It was like soap opera basically, but it just took place in one set in the courtroom. And so I'd done a couple of those, and it was very serious drama stuff. And I'd done some soap opera work. And primarily, I'd done all this drama stuff. But I wasn't working much. And, I, and I, as I mentioned, I was always getting frustrated for me. If I wasn't doing something, I felt like I was wasting my time. 
So I, I picked up the, the newspaper. I don't even know if it exists anymore. Called the Drama Log. I think it's still around. It still I think around? it's all online. Yeah. Oh, really? Where you you look to find um, auditions for showcases or for uh, you know non equity theater or student films and stuff. It was an actors' newspaper for actors who needed work to try to find something. And I remember seeing an ad that said um, sketch comedy theater looking for new players. And this was this Acme Comedy Theater that was run by a guy named Mark Sweeney back in the day. And he had gotten together a group of people who were sort of uh, expatriate groundlings. They had sort of fallen out of love with that organization, and they were going to start their own theater. And he was, he was the guy who was organizing, and they had this theater. And they had one group of people, six or seven people, who were doing sketch comedy on a weekly basis. Improv and sketch comedy. And he decided it was going well enough that he was going to get a second company going. And that's what that audition was for, is for a, a second group of, of actors to come in and be sort of like the, the B team, you know, the, the junior varsity for this, for this organization. Because he wanted to make it grow like the Groundlings where there would be classes and, and, and you know, the JV team. And then as people left, then people would move up move and up, it would become right. a big theatrical And a big show on the weekend that was like this, the Groundlings. Yeah, was. and yeah. kind of a best of sketches that you guys would put together and that would run for a while. Very similar to the Groundlings or what Second City was doing in exactly. Chicago. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I had no experience doing sketch comedy, and I had no experience writing sketch comedy, but I had written some stuff throughout college and things, and I, for some reason I thought I could do it. I don't know why, whatever possessed me into thinking that I could do it. But I knew that do, taking a class every week in front of six other actors who were equally as neurotic as I was, or being on a stage in front of an audience every week, that sounded more fruitful to me. That sounded like a better opportunity to really get good at something as if I was out there in front of an audience listening to them groan or laugh, depending on how successful or, or unsuccessful I was, as opposed to other actors who were always like, wow, you were great, you know, just blowing smoke up each other's ass. It just, it just <laughs> seemed like the, the, the classroom setting had just gotten counterproductive to me. So I auditioned for this theater group, and I did some improv, and uh, it went well. And I did some different characters. And that was the first time I ever started using the voices and impressions and things that I had done was in that audition, doing silly voices and things like that. And apparently it went well enough that they said, yeah, come on back and, and, and you'll be a member of this, of this new group that we're starting. Now, did a light bulb go on at that point and go, oh, I, I, I can be – because it's so interesting to me that you haven't really talked about being funny that much up until this point. I mean, obviously, you, you were a funny guy around your friends or yeah, at home, you made people he, laugh or right. whatever, but it wasn't part of your aspirational, you know, path. No, and, I wasn't one of those guys who wanted to be a stand-up, you know, right. or I'd never done any of that. It was, for me, I was always acting first and I didn't want to be a personality. I wanted to be a character actor. And this just struck me as an opportunity to do characters in front of a live audience once a week. And I said that that would probably be good training for me. It would be like boot camp, you know, and it forced me to write, too, which I thought would also be a, a useful talent to sort of hone was like to be able to write sketches and put stuff together, which was part of this program. So that's how it started for me. And, and that's when I started leaning on the impressions and things, because once you're faced with a blank page, you say, OK, what can I do now that's going to make me stand out and be funny? How can I separate separate myself from the pack? Because there were a ton of funny, talented, good actors in that group. I just well, tell you know, us what who, can I do? Tell us who you, you were working with around that time. Well, initially in my group, there was uh, Lisa Cashel, 
now now Lisa Arch, who is still one of my favorite people on the planet, and she's hilarious, very funny, funny and very she's talented. She's on a Nickelodeon show right now and a bunch of other stuff. That's right. And she's the uh, woman in the Wheat Thins commercial with the Yeti. With <laughs> Bigfoot, or whoever he is, yes. <laughs> and Bern Offit was also in that B group, and a guy named Cortland Cox now who's a very successful writer. And, uh, geez, who else was in my group? Um they all blur together because, you know, there was other casts at it, and then you moved and you joined right. other casts and stuff. But at the time, just generally in the theater, Adam Carolla was there. He's one of the founding members of this theater. Right. And uh, Paul Rudd and John McCann were in that A group who went on to write incredible stuff for Warner Brothers Animation, the, you know, Animaniacs and all that stuff was all they're, they're doing. And uh, Vanessa Thomas, funny lady out of uh, Canada, who we worked with right, for many right. years. And uh, Katie Donahue and Lisa Malone, Paul Rudd. Uh, not Paul Rudd, Paul Rugg. Um, <laughs> close enough. Close enough. I bet he gets that all the time. Anyway, just a ton of funny people. The guys who uh, are now producing uh, New Girl, um, Bear, uh, Brett Bear, and Dave and Finkel. Dave Finkel, right? There. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so, a so ton. and you guys get pretty popular. You're you're pulling people okay. in. Yeah, yeah, we had we had a, a lot of nights that the the audience was sold out, and we had really good reviews in the trades and uh, some of the major mainstream newspapers, and things were doing doing really well. What? So, what year are we talking right now? See, I'm the worst at this. Yeah, when me people too. start asking me about that stuff, I, boy, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think that is it's. It, I don't know. Early mid '90s, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. So, what impressions are you doing around that time? What are the things that that stick? It's because you're doing topical stuff. I yeah, would assume. Kind me of. Not so much. No. I, I was always because, like I said, I was a TV geek, so I was leaning heavily on like celebrities and stuff. I yeah. wasn't doing. I was still doing. TV's Batman, Adam West. I still would work that in, and I would do William Shatner as Captain Kirk. And, you know, I would do, like, all the old TV tropes. I would bring those out. Right. And, uh, you know, Kirk Douglas and, uh, you know, all the, the, the old, old-timey old movie stars. And um, who else was I doing at the time? I know. I, I, I started early on trying to develop more organic sort of original voices than then lean on the impressions. I certainly did when I had to, but I always found that the people I respected and I when I would watch the people, even in our own group work, it's like when they come up with these crazy characters, like Bob Cashel, Lisa's uh, brother was a guy who would come up with these insane original characters and stuff. And um, I always sort of respected and said, well, that's kind of cool. That's sort of how you stand out. And, and, and um, you know, at that point, it's so funny because everybody in the sketch comedy world wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Right, right. That was the goal. And, and and the Groundlings was already a pretty good conduit for that, right? So everybody was trying to work along those lines. I mean, Mad TV ended up being sort of what SNL was for Groundlings. Mad TV became that way for for the for the acting folks because uh, Lisa Shell went there and um, Alex Borstein ended up there on on, on uh, Mad TV, who's now of course Lois on Family Guy, and. Um, but I never really wanted that. It was so weird. I was still had my eye on TV and movies and stuff, even when I was doing the Acme stuff. It wow, was a so blast. It was fun, but it felt like, like, uh, like going to the gym and working out for me, as opposed to like training for a career. So know? SNL just not part of the goal. No, no. I remember I, I lived at this point later on when, at that theater. I lived with, uh, I lived by myself uh, just off of Melrose, in between Melrose and Beverly in Hollywood, and I was uh, down. The, I was a half a block away from my friends, Jerry Collins. And Scott Winio and their roommate, a guy named Will Farrell, who was li- who was working, and they were all sketch people, and he was Groundlings, and we were Acme. But I got to know Will, and we were very close, and you know we'd hang out and see each other, and we were neighbors, and he was always very nice to me. And then one day, Will was just gone, and I said, "Where? What happened to Will?" I saw him moving all his stuff. I was like, "Yeah, he's going to New York," and and I said, "What?" He goes, "He got Saturday Night Live," 
and that buzz kind of went through. He was the first guy we knew personally who, who we had sort of come up with who yeah. was going to make that move. And everybody was very, very excited. And I was like, oh, that poor bastard. I don't really don't see him doing that well. <laughs> really? I always thought. I don't see him doing that I always that thought well. he was sort of like dry and sort of very, very cerebral. Right. I mean, to me, that's how I always took Will. I had no idea what he was going to do when he got on that show. And how he sort of blew up playing a crazy cheerleader and all these other nutty things he did. It's funny. Uh, Jim, you know Jim Wise, sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Jim was, uh, has been in here. He talked about his uh, time at the Groundlings where he was actually an instructor for a while. Mm-hmm. And he, had, he told a story about... Uh, the that first level that 101 basically or whatever and uh, there was a young man by the name of jimmy fallon in his class <laughs> and jimmy at that very first it's like why are you guys here and jimmy said uh i want to be on saturday night live one day and everybody laughed at him <laughs> and, and jim is sitting there having to kind of suppress his you know oh, smile because so he's funny. the instructor going well that's great young james but let's get started first um, that's so funny. So is it? I mean, for for any of you guys who have seen people at, at very much that beginning level to see what happens out of that, yeah, is, it's uh, it is surreal. Once your friends start to become famous, it is a little weird. So uh, we need to fast forward to uh, yes, current life, uh, and you need to get the hell out of here because I've been talking to you so long. But I I love this because I, I I'm always fascinated with the path and and also how much that changes because then radio got forced into your life. It, I, literally, they put a gun to my head and made me do radio. I'm not kidding. I, I and fought probably so do hard. every day, right? Well, that goes without saying. <laughs> I fought so hard not to take this job. I mean, fast forward, I, uh, Jimmy Kimmel became friends with Adam Carolla, who I was doing this uh, show with, and I actually ended up being a roommate with for a short period of time. You and Carolla lived together? Yeah. Me, Cortland Cox, and Carolla had a house together. Yeah. <sighs> Oh, I can't even wrap my head around that no, right no now. No one can. Is it, was, it, was it horrible? Was it great? It was great. Was it Animal House? It, it, was, it was Animal House for me in Cortland. It was not Animal House for Adam. Really? He, was, he did not appreciate the fact that we would throw parties like almost every fourth day. There'd be a party at our house. So Carole he would lock the himself, low-key one. Very much so. He would lock himself in his room and just sort of stay out of our way. And Cortland Cox and I would just... Uh, is tear the place up. What a pussy. Yeah, he was. He was oh, kind of a pussy. So he's all he's all bluster. He's not a party guy. Yeah. He's a talking guy. You know, he would come out and corner someone in the kitchen and give them his take for an hour and a half. And that was considered, you know, him being social. Meanwhile, I'm running around naked and going down the, the, into the hot tub and stuff. So uh, anyway, um, Jimmy Kimmel had become friends with Adam Carolla because Adam pursued radio. He went on the Kevin and Bean show, local radio show here in Los Angeles, for those of you who aren't familiar and uh, he started doing characters, and him and Jimmy became very good friends. They come up with this idea. They hatch this plan for a show called The Man Show together, which takes off, and they're leaving morning radio now to go do television. So Kevin and Bean, the guys who uh, are the, the leaders of the show, say to those guys, do you know anybody who can do kind of what you guys do for us? Anybody who can do characters or impressions or write comedy or anything? And Jimmy said, yes, Adam's friend Ralph Garman is great at all those things, and he should be your guy. And they said, Have, has he ever done radio? And they said, he said, no. And he said, well, we want a radio professional. We don't want somebody who just doesn't know what they're doing. So he said, meet them. And they said, okay, we'll meet. So Jimmy comes to me and he says, I want you to meet these guys. And I'm like, I'm not doing radio. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'd never heard this show, by the way. I said, I'm not you doing- hadn't listened to Kevin Bean at all? No. I was a bartender for a living, so I was sleeping until uh-huh. noon. And so um, I said, I'm not doing time and temp. And, oh, here's your next song coming up. And F that. I have no interest. <laughs> And um, you can say the F word. I know. I just realized I'm doing a podcast. Sorry, it's a force of habit. Fuck that. (laughs) And um, he said, no, this is different and it's comedy and it's bits and you'll be writing and it'll be really good uh, practice for you. And I said, Jim, I appreciate it. But no, I'm not interested. 
And so uh, he went away. And then he came back a couple weeks later and said, look, they haven't found anybody yet. And I really think you'd be a good match. And I think you should think about it. And I said, Jimmy, I'm an actor. I'm going to do television and film. I have no interest in doing radio. I'm not a DJ. And he said, um, just meet with them. So I, he talked me into it. And I met with these guys. And they said, have you done radio? And I said, no, I, don't, I haven't done radio. And I have no interest really in doing radio. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, we're you having... You couldn't have done more to try and resist it taking this freaking job. And it really has set me up for like everything else that's good happened in my life came from this thing. And I just, I just couldn't see it. And so I said, I'll tell you what, I will take the job um, until you find somebody that you really want to do it and who really wants it. I, and they said, okay, if you can give us like three months, I thought, that's all it should take. Right. And I said, uh, fine, three months it is. Now, I have a memory around this time, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, I'm working at a different station in town at this time, and I'm driving in during mornings. And I've known you because of you coming into where we are right now, Premier Radio Networks is what it was called at the time. Right. You were doing bits for it and stuff. So I was kind of rooting for you and checking it out. And my memory is that they stuck you out at Universal Studios early on. You were doing like a live remote from there for some reason. It was doing a re- one of these hilarious radio giveaways <laughs> where we had people living inside a VW Beetle. That's right. And you were doing updates and And I was reports. doing live reports from the scene talking about the people who were living inside the VW Beetle. And I think I remember saying, I remember in my head going, wow, Ralph does not sound comfortable doing that. And then you would do something hilarious and say something that the guys were really responding to. So, I mean, in my mind, I was, I was rooting for you, having no idea how potentially miserable you were at doing it. I really just took it for the cash, you know, because they were saying it would pay more than my shift would at the bar, you know, and and I was getting kind of tired of bartending. It had been years. Sure. You know, eventually you want to try to get something close to what you want to end up doing. You may not have it all, but I figured, all right, radio, it's not for me, but at least it's not waiting tables or bartending. And maybe, maybe I'll meet somebody that might be able to get me to my next gig, whatever that's going to be. Right, right. So three months now, 15 years later, I'm still waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning and going in and doing the show. So who, who'd have thunk it? But it has, though. It has opened doors to Family Guy, I would guess, is, is one Linda of Linda Lamontagne, the casting director of Family Guy, heard me on Kevin and Bean, and that's why she brought me in for the first time uh, over 10 years ago. And I met Seth, and we hit it off, and I started working. Now I'm in, I'm in every episode of you've Family been, And Guy. you've been in his movies? I was in Ted. I just did a little thing in Ted 2 that we shot in New York, and <sighs> A Million Ways to Die in the West. I, I had a nice role in that. Yes, and with a great mustache. I was, I'm very proud of that mustache. I miss it sometimes. Did you grow that mustache? Yeah, that's for real. That looks CGI to me. No, that was for real, oh son. Oh, my God. That was the real deal. You can grow some hair, mister. That, I, I was like, I was full-blown Selleck. I, was, I really had. <laughs> you really were. I was shocked. With an accent. I was shocked how it, how well it fleshed out. But. I want to talk about Family Guy for a second because, uh, th- and this is such a hack question: Is it as much fun to work on as it sounds like? But it looks like that's a fucking hilarious r- room to read, do the table read, and all that stuff. Well, I'm sort of the utility player yeah. of that show. I do a lot of the cutaways when Peter says. This is like that time when, and then whatever, you know, whatever that is. Actually, I, I keep trying to kind of instigate this drinking game with people who know you. It's like, identify Ralph's voice. But the problem is, it's impossible to actually do that because you're just, they flash your credit at the end. But the, you can usually kind of pick you out of the crowd, but you're a cop, or you're that guy, I'm always or you're that other guy. the ancillary character. Can you give me an example around. of lines here, real quick? Um, geez, uh, you know, I'm probably best known for... Several characters that people actually do remember, which is I am the uh, the veterinarian the veterinarian in Quahog. I'm the I'm the one who announced right. who announced that Brian Griffin was dead in that famous episode. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm sorry, Griffins, he's gone. 
That was that was that character, and uh, I played Ted Turner on the show, right? And, right. And the famous episode where uh, Peter Peter's dog um, Brian impregnates a, a, a pedigree race dog and <laughs> the Peter Schmitz dog, and, and uh, I. I also, oh, my biggest role that people really remember because it was caused such a stir was there was an episode about Quagmire's sister who was dating a, an abusive boyfriend. Oh, right. And a lot of people were very upset about that episode, and I was the abusive boyfriend in that episode. That was my first sort of like guest starring role where I had the entire episode was yeah. about my character. And you said some pretty nasty I things. Awful things. <laughs> One of them being how much I like Jay Leno. That was like the most offensive thing I thought I said in that whole episode. And they and they knew that, didn't they? <laughs> yes. They wrote that specifically for you. Because I think Jay Leno is funny. <laughs> Seth, for some reason, loves it when I yell. Everything I do for him, I end up yelling. I yelled in Ted. I yelled in, in A Million Ways to Die in the West. I yelled in Ted, too. He thinks it's funny when I yell. So it is a great show to work on, but I'm the guy they kind of bring in and they say, okay, here's um, four characters. Read these lines. And they give me the sides. Right. And I don't even know what they're about sometimes. I don't get a chance to sit in on the table reads like with the rest of the cast. Actually, Seth doesn't even know. He, he does a lot of it by speakerphone he's so because he's, got, he's yeah. got 14 projects going on at any given time. But in the early days, we used to record together. I mean, Seth would direct all the episodes, and he would come in and read with you with the characters. And to stand next to him and record a scene where he is Brian and then Stewie and then Peter and then Quagmire. I mean, and he would do it live. You, he would just change up right next to you, and that's when you start to look, look out of the corner of your eye and say, this guy's a freaking genius. That's insane. That he's that perfect spot on unidentifiably different and every character comes to full life and he just and he's able to it's like that phil hendry thing you know where you can just kind right. of you can just eat just, where there's no there's no you know there's no, nothing no lacking yeah. no connective tissue yeah. between the two characters at all it just boom fully formed out of his head every time he says a line it was it was kind of remarkable that's to watch nuts. yeah always and, a pleasure and one of the things that's developed and become a very much a thing is your relationship with kevin smith yes and ho- here's the plug portion of the podcast yes uh your podcast hollywood babylon right which has Garnered this huge following. Garner? Garment? Garmin? Garmin? This huge following now. Yeah. You guys are at the improv regularly? We do it every, almost every Friday night here in Los Angeles at the improv on Melrose, the late show, the 10 o'clock show. Um, we, we've been a little spotty schedule wise lately because Kevin's been shooting his movie and I've been doing some other stuff. Um, but um, yeah, we, we've been doing it for four years now, almost, almost every week for four years. And it has been the blast and it's just been, well, you know, having done this, it's just to do something long form where you don't have to worry about commercial breaks and keeping it tight or whatever and Language. explore some stuff and go in a different direction and let things surprise you. We, we met on the radio show, again, how the radio show has changed my life. He was a guest who would come in and pitch his new movie or whatever it was. And we always hit it off and had a great time together. And finally we said, we should work together on something. What can we do? Yeah. So we kind of came up with this idea for this podcast. And it's blown up to the point where we just did a, a European tour, or tour of the U.K. And, and Ireland over the summer. And we played to at the Apollo Hammersmith Theater in London, 3,600 seats. We sold it out for people to watch us do the podcast live. Sold out of theater in, in London. That's you know, it's crazy. Yeah. And it's largely based, of course, he's got a huge fan base. And they've kind of enveloped me and welcomed me into the family. But uh, the show has, has millions of viewers all over, uh, viewers, listeners all over the, the world. And it's it led to what we just do a TV pilot. We're doing a, a TV version of Fantastic. it. Fantastic. And it's just, yeah, it's just been a blast. And we have to address, we cannot end things without addressing your lifelong obsession I think we can call it a full-fledged obsession with Batman. Yeah. And yeah. that, I would imagine, because of our ages-ish, uh, that was at first a result of the original TV show. Absolutely. Which yeah. you 
I remember watching. Now I can I will admit this now, because it's so campy and so fun and so ridiculous when you watch it now, and and wonderful in its way. Yes, I was actually frightened during that show. I would get scared. The, uh, Cesar Romero's Joker. He's terrifying. Freaked the shit out of me as he a kid. He still is, in my opinion. By the way. Uh, okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same page no, here absolutely. because I'd rank him. I mean, I would have tough time between Nicholson, Heath Ledger, and Cesar Romero. It sounds ridiculous, but he talk about. Absolutely not holding back, having no fear and letting go. Are you kidding me? And the fact that they painted over his mustache, that he refused <laughs> to shave for the character, at the time was seen as like a gag. But if you look at that face, it's like it's like a, like a pedophile party clown or something. You know what I mean? Because you can see there's a guy underneath the makeup, yeah. and he's a little deranged, and he's off his nut. And I think it's as terrifying in a much more real way than any other Joker performance. I have a distinct memory of wa- having to watch Batman, but having to watch it from like behind the <laughs> counter in the kitchen, That's and I could funny. only peek around the corner. I have a distinct memory of that. <laughs> Don't laugh at it. I told you not to laugh at me. <laughs> I'm scared, you Larry Morgan. <laughs> no, stop it. Stop it. Uh, yes. Uh, the Joker will get you. Yes. Okay. You just, I just peed a little now. <laughs> um, but but that began this, I mean, you read all the comic books, I'm guessing. Well, the TV yeah. show led me to comic books. Yeah. And then uh, I became a hardcore comic book geek and science fiction stuff. I still love all that stuff. But the Batman fixation never left me, specifically the show. That was sort of my thing. And um, I was a hardcore fan. And as I got older, I started to recognize how sort of genius it was and how brilliantly funny it was and how well-written and the work that Adam West did with that deadpan performance was just insanely It's kind of amazing. It is. And um, so, yeah, so I just became a lifelong fan. And then as I started working again in radio, Adam would come in sometimes to pitch something or whatever to talk about a new project or his book or whatever. And we started to become friends, and I became friendly with him and... Then, of course, through Family Guy, we're both working on Family Guy. He's the Marico hug, and I'd see him at work. And I think he's, he got less afraid of me <laughs> because he knew I was, like, super fan. But I, I slowly started to uh, allow him to believe I was also a normal human being, too. And we became pals. And then I did this campaign where I tried to get him his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Right. Because when I found out that it didn't exist, I was sort of furious. And I became friends with his sister uh, – not his sister, his uh, daughter, who was also trying to accomplish the same ends. So we kind of teamed up, and eventually we got that done. And I was able to speak at the ceremony. He asked me to speak before he accepted. And uh, it, it's, it's been sort of a phenomenon that, that, you know, taking it full circle to that little kid who was two years old when the show came on. And my parents would put me in a high chair in front of the television. And they said the first song I ever sang was na 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 So for that two-year-old kid from Philadelphia to now be here in Los Angeles, and I just talked to Adam on my birthday. He called me to wish me a happy birthday. And... Um, you know, the DVD box set now was out of all the episodes of the Batman TV show. It just came out. Yeah. They've got bonus features on there, and I'm in two of the bonus features. Right. You know? So right. It is, um, it, it's a pretty good life. And my friends kid me like, you know, Batman's a friend now. You're pretty much done. You're not yeah. going to be able to achieve anything. I was going to say, this. congratulations on your retirement, Ralph Garman. I have. Today uh, is the end. The bucket list now is, is full. What is next? Uh, th- that guy who still wants to do serious drama is in there. Uh, you still yeah. want to? I mean, you're still going out. You're doing auditions. You're still trying to, you know, all the time. You're, I go out you're for popping stuff. up in movies. You're popping yeah. up uh, here and there. You know, it's nice though. Again, people, people who know me and like the work in the morning radio show have been very kind. I mean, um, um, David Shore, the creator of House, uh, gave me a role on House because uh, he was a fan of what I did, and it was a dramatic role. But he thought I could do it, and and I hope I didn't let him down. But people who are fans of the radio show tend to reach out and say. 
you know, would you like to work? I, was, I got to be a regular on NYPD Blue because one of the producers was a fan of the show. DJ Caruso, a very talented director, movie director, put me in Two for the Money with Al Pacino and, and Matt McConaughey yeah. because he you was were a great fan in of what that. I did. I, and I like doing the drama, but I don't, at this point, I wonder if maybe just the comedy is just, you know, I, I might as well go with my strong suit at this point. <laughs> so I just did a film for uh, Sci-Fi that'll be out at the beginning of next year called Lava Lantula. Which is about uh, lava. Please, please tell me you're not making this up. Lava spewing giant tarantulas <laughs> who come out of the ground after after the big one in Los Angeles, and Steve Gutenberg and I battle uh, giant spiders together. You have just made me so happy. It's pretty awesome. Oh. I think you're going to enjoy it. Oh, because I had done God. another film for them called Sharktopus, right? Half Captain Shark. Jack, Captain Jack, and. <laughs> Half shark, half octopus, all Maybe monster. your best work yet. I like to think so. <laughs> and uh, so they brought me back for another one in a, in, a, in a bigger role, a bigger, better role. And so uh, Steve Gutenberg and I, and uh, um, uh, remember Ham from The Sandlot? You ever see the movie The Sandlot? Oh, yeah. Ham Porter? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, uh, he's, a, he's the third of our, uh, our spider hunters. And so we go out there and we take on some spiders. When's so, that airing? Uh, I think... Spring of next year. So, all right, and check your local listings. And Kevin and Bean on one hundred six point seven K Rock every single freaking morning. Every morning. And how much have you grown to despise their voices and their presence and their? I mean, it's really gotten bad now. You can. It's palpable from the radio. You're. It's like any family or group of friends or whatever. I mean. Uh, I kid, of course. Yeah, of course you are. But but there are moments. I mean, you re- there is tension sometimes, like in any workplace or any family or any. We spend more time together than we do with our families uh, yeah. in a lot of cases. You yeah. know, so there is there is the occasional flare up. But for the most part, I think we get along pretty well. I like to think when we do have our dysfunctional moments, we very uh, blatantly play them out on the air to make everyone uncomfortable and and uh, including ourselves. But I think that lends an air of reality to our show that a lot of morning shows don't have there are guys in this business larry and you know who it's always sunshine and lollipops it's a very slick well-produced show each and every morning and our show is is none of those things no and uh, anybody who spent any time with it for any length of time it's it it is one of the last few great radio morning shows Well, well it's true because you do have that ability to just i mean you guys are the real deal i mean for better or worse bean is bean that's true you you guys are absolutely honest who you are and then you're all just naturally funny and i think that uh, that's a lost art i just don't think that exists that much anymore well people don't get much of a chance to do that anymore no you know, that's with true. the way radio is structured they don't want you to talk that much they want you to play the music and and it's already killing them that they have a three-minute song you know they, they would right. like to have half of that if they could so they don't want they don't want people talking it's funny i came up with this idea for this hollywood babylon show with kevin smith and i first took it to k-rock the station that uh, that i work on and i said give us your worst time slot give us something on sunday nights or saturday afternoons or whatever is dying just give us two hours and we're going to do a funny show and i bet you will do better than whatever you've got there and he said you know what people just don't want to hear people talk on the radio anymore right right thus thus podcast here we are that's why people do it well uh, so uh, where can people find you uh, on Twitter, it's at Ralph Garman, and uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. All right. Yeah. And anything else we should be looking for? Uh, no, Lava Lantula is the next big thing. And Ted, too, next year as well. But I'm just, uh, I'm, uh, you'll have to play Where's Ralph in, in that one. Because it was funny. Ted, you know, <laughs> Seth is such a great guy. He's put me in everything he's done. And I was the father in Ted 1. When oh, the, that's right. When the bear first comes to life, Alex Borstein, 
who also from Acme. It's so weird how we all kind of keep coming together. Yeah. Uh, You're there in the kitchen. She's Lois on Family Guy, but she's uh, Mark Wahlberg's mother in the flashback sequence. Right, and you're the dad. And I'm the dad, and the bear comes to life, and we're in the kitchen, and we lose our minds, basically, (laughs) because there's a talking stuffed bear in our house. And that's a very memorable scene for a lot of people who have seen Ted. So Seth said, I want to put you in Ted, too. And I said, I'm not going to be upset. Don't try to say that, because I won't be upset if you don't put me in it, because there's no way you can put me in this unless the character comes back from the the dead or something. There's no point. And he said, no, I'm going to find something. I'm going to find something. So he did, and it's, it's a very funny a uh, way to put me in the film without you actually knowing it's me. Are so. you heavily disguised is what you're saying? I'm, I'm saying that, yes. Okay, so yeah. I don't want to give it away, but uh, we'll, we'll play Where Am I when, when that comes when out. When does Ted 2 come out? Summer of next year. Oh, cool. Yeah. Ralph, it's a pleasure, man. I, it's been so fun to watch kind of you go through what you go through. I, it's it's great to be able to spend time with you every morning without actually having to be with you. And I, I, a lot of people have said that, Larry. You're not alone. And... Um, and you have this great family and this beautiful daughter, and that's something great we haven't wife. really touched on. Yeah. You've, but um, it, it, let's just kind of end with that. I mean, that that's you had this reputation for years being on the radio of being, you know, the Playboy kind I of guy. I was a man whore. I was a yeah. slut. Yes, yeah. absolutely. How much has that changed you? How impactful having the family? Is there any way to put that in words? Um, and I was talking to, uh, not the name drop, but Simon Pegg was in to talk about one of his films recently on their show. And uh, we've been friendly. We've met several times, and we, 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 we get along. So we're having a conversation before he goes on the air for his interview. And he said, have you found – he's got a daughter the same age as mine, four. He said, have you found that it just changed you? And I said, only on a cellular level. <laughs> That's all that's different. Everything down to my DNA has been completely altered by this experience and by this little person. Other than that, I'm exactly the exactly same. Exactly the same guy. So that, that was my take on that. It's like it's just everything is different. The way you look at the world, what you do, the way you behave. I mean, um, it, it, people who knew me, I was a longtime smoker. I finally quit smoking because my daughter came up to me and said, Daddy, I don't want you to smoke anymore. And I was like... All right, well, that's, there goes that then. All right. That's another thing I can't enjoy anymore. <laughs> so I put those aside. Yeah. You just do stuff for her that you would never do for anybody else, and you just you change it, whatever, you know, whatever you can do is what you – your priorities are completely yeah. different. You know, it's, the, it's cliche, but it's true. Well, um, get used to giving up stuff for the rest of your oh, life. Oh, yeah. I'm glad I kind of had it late. I mean, it sucks because I'm old and I have no energy. <laughs> that is a problem. But I did have a fun single life for many, many years before I got married and had a kid. So I, I, I got my, I got mine. Write that book, man. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ralph, for talking. Thanks for asking me to be here. I appreciate it. Get a monkey. Get a monkey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.